0: Welcome to the Center for the Performing Arts at Penn State. I'm communications director, Laura Sullivan, and you're in tune with previews. Interviews editor John Raffis recently had a conversation with Irvin Mayfield, gifted trumpeter and artistic director of the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra. Mayfield's big band performs February 17th at Penn State in a program called New Orleans Then and Now. Mayfield discusses jazz's place in American culture, what people can expect to hear at the concert, and the impact Hurricane Katrina has had on him, his bandmates, and the city he loves. He also talks about his mentor Wynton Marsalis. The podcast includes samples of the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra's music making from the band's acclaimed CD, Strange Fruit.
1: Very much looking forward to having the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra here on February 17th at Eisenhower Auditorium at Penn State.
2: And okay, we're looking forward to coming up.
1: You're going to be performing a program called New Orleans, Then and Now. I was uh, reading recently that Mayor Negan of, of New Orleans in an article was referring to jazz as New Orleans' natural resource, and I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. And you are in the business, I guess, in, in a way of, of selling that natural resource.
2: Uh, well, I don't think it's really something i I necessarily sell because it's it's something that everybody already has ownership on of uh kind of more what my job is is make people realize the power of it and 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 understand it's a tool that can help them um you know and reali- and the most important aspect of the tool is you know understanding more about it. it helps you understand more about yourself it's It's not just New Orleans's natural resource it's America's natural resource i mean jazz is the manifestation of democracy into music. And uh the more we kind of get into that, uh you know it's one of the greatest American experiences you can have.
1: The program that you're going to be doing sort of traces the evolution of jazz as it as it started in New Orleans, which uh, I think most people realize that's the birthplace of jazz and how it um has informed culture there and has moved on to the rest of America and the world. Can you tell me a little bit about what the program involves?
2: Yeah, most of the program really is, is like a commentary on you know, the relationship to jazz through the eyes of New Orleans, because jazz has a different function in New Orleans from where it has everywhere else. Uh, you know, because it's one thing to, you know, it, it was it's like uh, eating uh, spaghetti and drinking Chianti at Penn State, right? <laughs> <And> <laughs> yes, there's, then, a, there's uh, a
1: lot of Italian food at Penn State.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so it's like eating, eating Italian food and drinking Chianti at Penn State, and then all of a sudden you go to Florence, Italy. Now, I can tell you that pasta and Italian food And Chianti in Florence, Italy, is more significantly different than what it would be uh, than you find anywhere else. Uh, And that's what New Orleans is like, you know, to have jazz in a place that it it resides and where it's originated from, you know, the fumes of it are a lot thicker. Right. Uh, and even the relationship that people have to it, for instance, you know, if you went to a dilapidated school in New Orleans, I'm talking about a school where you would, you would say, look, these kids uh, wouldn't be your A students. You know, these are not your top of the line. This is the schools where everything is dilapidated and things are falling apart. You bring in a tuba, which is not a cool instrument, a tuba and a clarinet, and you can start a ride. <laughs> and I'm being bitches. I mean, you really would have a hard time, and you could be playing music from the 1920s. That's the power of jazz, that's what, with that, and that's the, that interaction with jazz is what we're trying to show people and try to make them understand because it's our relationship to it that makes it so interesting. Uh, and of course, you know, you would paying respect to all the masters, but more importantly, we're giving jazz from, a, uh, from the perspective of who we are today because we're not a repertory band. You know, we don't play, uh, you know, it's not like when you go see jazz and Lincoln Center where we're playing the master's and, you know, this is how Ellington did it. And this was, We're basically giving a commentary of this is where we are and this is who we are. And by doing that, we're also talking about the history of what we have because New Orleans owns the history of jazz. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's a little different. You know, the same thing of, of like uh, when you hear uh, Lincoln Center play Duke Ellington. You're not going to find a better band that can do that. But the same thing with us. When we start playing the music, you know, uh, people's feet start – Moving, people get up, they start clapping, they are and they're singing along. That's that's the New Orleans experience.
1: So, in addition to playing, you know, classical New Orleans jazz by the likes of Jelly Roll Morton and and Louis Armstrong, you're also going to be doing contemporary pieces.
2: Well, the thing is, we don't we don't jazz does not jazz does not have that meaning to us. If if you if you ever spend time in New Orleans, you don't hear. You know, you you might have a few places where you go with somebody playing like what they call the traditional New Orleans uh, or that, you know, uh, classical New Orleans jazz. Jazz does not work like that in New Orleans. As a matter of fact, until I lived in New York City for three years, I never even heard of people separating jazz into genres uh, or time periods, you know. (laughs)
0: Like
2: when I got to New York, one would say, well, this is a Miles Davis you know, I play sixty style. Somebody goes, well, I play avant-garde. You know, I, I just found that to be so shocking because being down in New Orleans, you know, you just play whatever you were called for. You, you just were working. And, uh, you know, you come from the concept that all jazz is modern. There's no such thing as modern jazz. Uh, Louis Armstrong was playing the most modern trumpet to date back in 1920. Um, and you can go all the way to Freddie Hubbard or Woody Shaw, and that still will not stand up to the brilliance of his sound and the technical facility of what he was playing with.
1: So if you're a jazz musician in New Orleans, it's more like gumbo. It's it's all working together at the same time, and it's not about then and now.
2: Exactly, which is what then and now is all about. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? You can go to New Orleans and take, take and, and had gumbo 20 years ago and come back to New Orleans and find that same exact gumbo. And it's there. really good. <laughs> and, it, and, and, and the great thing about it is that it's always different. Yeah. See, that's what makes it modern. See, it, it, the thing about when you, if you hear Louis Armstrong play in the 20s and you're playing in the, in the late 60s, it's, it's a completely different approach. But at the same time, it's something that's always familiar there. And that's that's the paradox that makes America what America is, you know. Uh, That's that thing that makes jazz so American. It's the paradox of that, hey, it's a different way every time, but at the same time we're always trying to to accomplish the same thing. Uh, You have to be an individual. You have to do your own thing. I have to do my own thing, but we got to come together and do this thing as a group or we fail poorly. And when we do it right, it sounds great. When we do it bad, it sounds horrible
1: it's probably impossible at this point to talk about jazz in new orleans without bringing up hurricane katrina and and everything that the people of new orleans have been through since then i know that you have worked tirelessly um before the the hurricane and since to spread the gospel of of jazz how has it changed since since the hurricane
2: well uh for people living in new orleans i guess i guess the thing that is uh the, the You know, speaking of a, as a New Orleanian, you know, the, the first thing is the tragedy. It, it never goes away, especially, you know, like, f- f- take myself, for instance, you know, having lost my dad in a storm. Right. um You know, it, it's hard to, you, you don't really ever get over that. You know what I mean? You don't get past that.
1: Well, it's a, an incredible tragedy, and I, I send all of my uh, sympathy to you. That must have been an incredibly difficult
2: experience. I I, I really appreciate that. Well, yeah, the same same um. You know that that same concept you can understand. You know you never get over, it. you never get past it, uh, but you do have to step forward. You know, so you, but but you're carrying this stuff with you. And I think for the most people in New Orleans, you know, the rebuilding process, the fact that the federal assistance is not here fast enough, uh, and the musicians take the brunt of that. And you know, the most important thing I really want to tell people at, at when we come to Penn State, um, you know, especially for the type of audience that we'd we'll be playing for there, which I think is you know though that's really the true music audience uh, You know, when you look at the demographic of folks that come out to the type of concert that you guys are going to have coming out um, you know I want a lot of people to understand that a lot of people want to know what they can do and believe me if anybody wants to give us a check I'm not turning anybody <laughs> away I tell them go to my website well
1: of I, was, course. I was going to be asking you that question you know what, yeah, what of course. can people do
2: the, to the home the com if people want to contribute okay. obviously directly to musicians but, but the most important thing I want people to understand is that coming to the concert buying the ticket is really participating in the rebuilding process of New Orleans. It's as much as putting a hammer and a nail to a roof. Uh coming to the concert, listening, supporting these musicians who've been through a lot. And they're still going through a lot. They're still fighting. Uh there there are no uh, strongholds for musicians. There are no parachutes for the musicians. The musicians have are dealing with um you know serious issues. They're dealing with uh having to try to rebuild their lives, and you know, um, you know, musicians are like uh, entrepreneurs. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You, you being a writer, you got to understand. It. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, musicians like entrepreneurs, and and it, it's hard, man. It's hard to uh, the federal government doesn't doesn't really have a system to help the culture, doesn't have a system to really help out individual musicians. You know, people want to give money to Habitat for Humanities or the Salvation Army or the Red Cross. But that doesn't help a musician get get on with his life and right. move to the level of stuff that he needs to get with. And we're out here believing that the the number one process for us to help the musicians is to put them to work and give them money. They can figure everything else out from there.
1: Right. It's probably important to, to mention that the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra is a non-profit um, organization, so right. that contribution would certainly be tax-deductible for people who are concerned about that sort of thing.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly, 110%. And and also that, uh, you know, we're the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra Touring Band is just one piece of the institution called the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra. The New Orleans Jazz Orchestra is, is a business that does the business of jazz and the culture of New Orleans. I mean, that's primarily what we do. Now, in order to show people that, you know, it's one thing to talk about it, but you got to hear it. <laughs> right. You got to experience it. So the touring group, obviously, is one of our, our most essentially important things. And obviously... Uh, right now, and this time, trying to remind people of hurricane katrina that's that's important
1: and you're very involved um as you said the the touring is just a part of it you're very involved with educational activities both at home in New Orleans and on the road. I know that when you come to Penn state you'll be doing a master class here and and you do quite a lot of that around the country. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your educational activities
2: yeah we just we just really believe i, I don't I, I guess i don't even like to call it education. Uh, I, you know, as you can see, I always have a problem with titles. Because <laughs> I think things, you know, sometimes verbal, to define a verbal communication of what something is, you know, sometimes it's just not the way we can, the best way we can translate it. But, you know, basically we believe that our education programs about telling people what something is so they can own it. Meaning that when we give you what jazz is, we want you to be able to walk away, and the next time you hear jazz, you, you're like a connoisseur of it. You know it. You have it. It's your thing. And you understand why you should understand it, because you're an American, and all Americans should understand their culture. We created it right here. This is, we the place that have it. That's when people come from all over the world. One of the first experiences they want to have when they come to America, jazz. That's what people think about. And, um, you know, I remember when I was in Hungary, and I was with the president of Hungary, and he told me, he said, when they, when this country got liberated from communism, they said, three things represent uh, that liberation for them represented democracy, and um, one of them was blue jeans, one of them was Coca Cola, and the third one was jazz.
1: <laughs> Those are three good things.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, very good things, and that's that's how we try to tell people about jazz, and, and you know, and tell people about jazz through the sensibility of New Orleans, meaning mm-hmm. from the aspect of dancing to it and partying to it. You know, jazz was born out of the streets in New Orleans, and it still resides there. Right. So for us for us to think of jazz, we don't just think of jazz in one form like you sit in a club and you listen to it or a, a concert hall. We think of it as a street performance, we think of it as a party music. And, you know, that's the same type of thing we try to bring to our educational uh, workshops, same thing we try to bring on stage. And and we really believe that our stage performances are very educational also. And that's what we try to aim to do.
1: You're actually based at Tulane University, are you not? Right. Uh,
2: the, New, the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra has a partnership with Tulane University. Right.
1: And you used to have uh, an affiliation and maybe still do to some extent with Dillard University in New Orleans? Right. I I
2: was the founder and director of the uh, Institute of Jazz Culture at Dillard University. Now I, I'm primarily working over at Tulane uh, on the collaboration with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still collaborate with Dillard every now and then, but I was just glad to have founded the, the institute. But as you can imagine, uh, I don't have really the time. <laughs> to be to be directed
1: anymore it was at dillard University that you um, premiered your work strange fruit which I must tell you i've i've listened to um about five times in the last few days i'm mesmerized I it is a, it it is a brilliant um, piece of music
2: yeah strange fruit is basically a commentary on lynching in america the
1: the piece has a you know such a tremendous amount of humanity to it and it, it really it's about an hour and twenty minutes long, and it's it's the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra, and there's a there's a narrator who it's it's sort of counterpoint. The narrator tells the story, and then the musicians play off that sort of point right. counterpoint. It it's really nicely done, and and you you did that with also the uh, the Dillard University Choir that, right. that provided the. Uh, the choir music, spirituals, and and there's even it feels like there's um, sort of the history of New Orleans music told through this story of of this love affair and that results ultimately in a lynching. Is that is that a fair assessment? That,
2: yeah, I, I think that's a very good a very good assessment. And the, also the choral music, uh, the in the style that I, I wrote it in is a, a tradition from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find very few choirs that really sing with that kind of. Uh, that with that kind of orchestration, and so the Dillard University Choir, obviously, is an excellent choir as you can hear mm-hmm. from the record, and uh, just you know, I just w- had studied for many years under a guy named Moses Hogan, who's now passed away, mm-hmm. and he was kind of really the bearer of that that style of writing, and you know, I, that 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 piece, uh, right at that time, Moses was supposed to conduct it, but he died, and so you find me really pulling out a lot of his stuff, and I really took a lot of time working on the choral pieces to really do him uh, justice in, in, in those pieces. that hurt. Well, you did an amazing job.
1: Will we be hearing any music from Strange Fruit uh, when you're here at Penn State?
2: Maybe so. There's so much new music uh-huh. that <laughs> we're always playing. <laughs> oh, and sure. the band, the band is always like, because the Strange Fruit was uh, 2003. Three. late uh, So you can imagine, you know, a band that has played consistently together for three years, right. going on four years, has uh, really got some stuff working. Yeah. And uh, they are, you know, they're ready to take it to the next level. And so uh, you know, who who knows if we're gonna really play there. We have our standard format. Mm-hmm. You know, even the program of here and now is written so much to the fact that we have our standard format but there's a lot of improvisation that I can put in there. So the things I can change. There's some things that I never change. Um, uh, but mostly what I think people can expect to get out of the performance is to uh you know, like we always like to say down in New Orleans, we want you to be able to taste the French quarter. We want you to be able to smell the second line. And we want you to really be able to see you know, the jazz music of 1920 all the way up to today.
1: I know that before the uh, the hurricane that all of the musicians lived and worked in New Orleans. Are you living in the city now, or were you not able to return, and, and are the other musicians living in the city now?
2: Right, well, you know, my, my job uh, in New Orleans is I'm the culture ambassador for the city, so me me not being in the city just isn't even a <laughs> well, reality. I, 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 I
1: figured that you were still there, but I you know, yeah. didn't want to assume.
2: So I, I I never really left. Okay. Uh but a lot of about fifty percent of our musicians still live all over the country and we have to fly everybody in um oh. to different places and it's 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 real, it's a painful process, but we we're still trying to get through this New Orleans rebuild.
1: The orchestra is sixteen or seventeen pieces, is that about the right number? It's about a standard size big band?
2: We're a little larger, we're actually eighteen but well, actually actually nineteen pieces. So we're larger.
1: Alright, so we have nineteen coming to Penn State. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you played at the White House last June as part of the commemoration of Black Music Month. You got to meet the president yeah. and and perform there. What was that like?
2: Uh, well, you know, to play at the White House is always a, you know an opportunity that every musician wants to take advantage of. It's like you know having an opportunity to play at Carnegie Hall or Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just one of those great opportunities, is to play in a White House, you know, and and be a part of a legacy of you know all the other great musicians who played in front of some of the most powerful people in the world.
1: You um, performed. I understand it was a, a fairly emotional performance. You you played just a closer walk with thee, which was the uh, the first song that you learned from your father.
2: Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, yeah, my dad taught me that song. Uh, actually, was the first song that I learned how to play in church, my brother and I used to play uh, it uh, together as trumpet duets. Actually, the significance of it is that song is also one of the songs that you play for a jazz funeral. You play it for a jazz funeral, you play it slow, but you also play it for the celebration we call a second line when you leave the funeral. Yeah. And so I just uh, thought it would be appropriate to not play the funeral portion of the song anymore because uh, in New Orleans, we kind of have to get past the morning of it. And, it, and it, oh, it was a song that got requested all the time. Right. And I just decided to retire the song and I retired it on New Year's Day, uh, with the governor and the lieutenant governor and the mayor of New Orleans when we on New Year's Day when we had a we had a celebration uh at the Superdome to announce the recovery of New Orleans moving back. But, you know, having an opportunity to play it in front of the President of of the United States at the White House, you know, I thought that would be more of an appropriate time and also to remind people uh, the president as well as, you know, the country that, hey, it's very real in New Orleans. It's still very serious down there, and people have lost a lot from lives to memories mm-hmm. uh, to hope. So uh, we want to, you know, we want to remind people that we need as much as we can get, not just financially, but also in the terms of uh, support uh, just, you know, from the heart to keep this rebuild going.
1: You were actually very influenced by your experiences in the church when you were young, um... I was reading about your your great uncle, who was a minister, and how you saw him as as almost a, a second father figure. And he had a great influence on your life. Is he is he still alive?
2: I tell you, uh, iron Well, not ironically, but sadly, he passed away this year uh, in in April. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, but he he was you know uh, 88 you know, he lived a, a you know, fairly long long life mm-hmm. but and he's such a jovial guy. Yeah, but he uh he was funny too, man. <laughs> yeah, he had sense of humor. Yeah, but he he was he was the guy that uh just going to church with him first of all he would always buy his donuts every time he went to church. So <laughs> <laughs> of course all the kids loved him and he gives everybody a dollar. Uh-huh. So that's how you came up just kinda knowing him and everybody thought of him as their grandfather, you know, and he was really more of a grandfather figure than anything in my life. Uh but and the experience of the church is where I really got my understanding of how music kind of worked. And also, uh, you know, to be in a church and learning all these old uh, traditional spirituals and gospel songs would be the same songs that I would learn to play in the jazz band. Right. So I would play with the brass band when I was 12, and we play these second lines and parades and funerals, and we are playing the same songs that we're singing in church on Sunday. And so that, that gave me a kind of context and a foundation of understanding uh you know, a little bit more about jazz. And as you can see, you know, when you, when you talk about jazz in this context, it means a little more than when you just go to a club and you hear a guy playing on a trio.
1: You started playing trumpet when you were nine, is that right?
2: I did. I started playing when I was
1: nine. You've done an incredible amount. Uh, I, w- I was reading that by the time you were 25, you had already released five albums, and now I think you're up to 10 or 11. That's quite a uh, quite an accomplishment for a young man.
2: Well, you know, I- I've just been fortunate to, uh, to be in a great city and have a whole bunch of great mentors. And, you know, from even looking back, somewhat I guess getting close to a decade of really uh releasing my first record and being out here and having experience of living with Wynton Marcellus 10 years ago mm-hmm. for three years at Lincoln Center uh you know having experience of you know knowing Terrence Blanchard and having lessons with him and from Nicholas Payton to my high school teachers to the guys at the Philharmonic who I studied with to just being in New Orleans and knowing what gumbo is and being able to travel <laughs> the world and you know, getting opportunities to do commissions with Gordon Parks. I mean, generally I have to say uh, I've just been really appreciative and uh, I have a serious amount of gratitude for the amount of opportunities I've been given. And, and my work really uh, if it seems like it's accomplishing a lot. It's not so much that. It's just much that I try to approach uh, every situation with that kind of gratitude because I know I don't have to have these opportunities, and I really appreciate it.
1: I would think given the role that you've taken on and that you do so well of being um, sort of an ambassador for jazz and for New Orleans and, and being a world-class trumpeter and, and working on all of the enrichment programs that you do, that you must be compared fairly often to Wynton Marsalis. Do, do you consider him a role model? And is that is that a comparison that you enjoy?
2: Well, I think um, the first thing is Wynton, Wynton is my mentor. Um, I probably have been more affected single-handedly. By him more so than any other individual. That doesn't mean I haven't, you know, have many other mentors, which I do. As far as my career goes and and things that I've done, he's had more of a effect on me because I, I lived with him for three years. Right. So, you know, obviously he plays a significant role. Uh, I think it is a great compliment for me to be compared to Wenton Marcellus and I think it's a great disservice to him because <laughs> uh, he's a man who truly stands uh, in his own light. Uh, you know, he has done a lot for America, and I think he's an unrecognized uh, hero. I would probably say also a, um, you know, really un- underrecognized artist for what he's accomplished and what he's done. Uh, he's, he's a great individual, and, you know, he's also like a, a brother, uh, a father, and a friend to me also.
1: I certainly would agree with you that he is perhaps underappreciated by the larger um, American community. But I've had the pleasure of getting to spend some time with him, and talk with him, and hear him in concert a number of times here at Penn State. And, and you're right, he's an extraordinary individual. And I think you're probably being very modest uh, about uh, how you uh, are are not quite of that. I can I can hear um, I can hear him in your voice and in your enthusiasm, and that's. That's an incredible gift, and and um, that's that's a, a marvelous thing. So,
2: well, it's it's a, it's a compliment. I, the only thing I would have to say more about Winton is that for all of his greatness in being an American and his music, his chess game stands a lot to be <laughs> lot to be desired. <laughs> I'll have to keep that in mind. Chess game. If, if he could find a little more time to practice his chess game he'd be okay. The next, the next <laughs> time he
1: comes to play here, I'll have to challenge him to a game of chess. But I, I'm sure... you must and
2: Look, not only do you have to challenge him to a game of chess, ask him, why does he run from me? <laughs> why is he afraid to face me on this chessboard? He needs to, you know, that's just... He needs to face up to his fear uh-huh. and, and take it like a man. That's what I think you should need to let him know. That was a direct quote from Irvin Mayfield. No, that. Stop running. I will meet him anywhere. Hey, I'll meet him at Penn State for a chess game if you want to do that.
1: I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm sure I could talk to you for hours on end, but uh, you're a busy man, and I really appreciate it. I'm very much looking forward to you being here in February, and we'll all be thinking about you and the other folks in New Orleans this year.
2: Well, I appreciate it, man. Hopefully uh, when we get up there, it'll be a little warmer. If not, hot chocolate's on you. Okay. You take good (laughs) care. All right, my brother.
0: Tickets are on sale now for the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra, performing Saturday, February 17th at 8 p.m. in Eisenhower Auditorium. Purchase online at www.cpa.psu.edu or phone 1-800-ARTS-TIX. For the Center for the Performing Arts, I'm Laura Sullivan.